Hi, it's Steve Albrecht, and welcome to the Library Service Safety and Security Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Library 2.0 and produced by the founder of Library 2.0, Steve Hargadon. For more information about Library 2.0, as you might guess, you can go to library20.com. My topic for this half hour is something I've been thinking about for a while, even a couple years now, which is the concept of the negotiated behavioral agreement with patrons. This is a simple concept that the, the title may be a little bit more complex is, I will do this for you if you do this for me. I'll do something positive for you, Mr. or Ms. Patron, if you can do something positive for me. And this is really aimed at those situations where the person's behavior is the wrong side of, of compliance. It's the wrong side of our policies and procedures. It's the wrong side of our code of conduct. Um, it has a lot of variances, and I want to talk about them. And, and one of the issues of the negotiated behavioral agreement is it is an early metric, an early measure, if you will, of compliance. And it says, I can do this for you if you can wait over here. I'll go get that information. Can I ask you to wait at this counter or, or this table or this chair for just a moment while I go and get that? And the person says, great, sure. Then it's a, a certainly a predictor of, of reasonable human interaction, especially in the service environment that the library is. But the negotiated behavioral agreement is also a way to say, look, if you don't stop doing these things, I have no choice but to call the police or the sheriff. I have no choice but to ask you to leave. I have no choice but to disengage. And I want to talk about things where this negotiated behavioral agreement is kind of the end result of this person's concerning behavior, threatening behavior, harassing behavior, uh, cursing behavior, where they are not in compliance and you're concerned as a library professional to be able to say, look, this is the last chance, the last step I need to give this person, the final warning, so to speak, before I enforce consequences, which is disengage or get help or get a supervisor or get uh, another colleague to help ask this person to leave. And if they don't, then we call the PD or the sheriff to have them escorted out of the facility. So it kind of goes back to a larger issue that I've been talking about for these, these webinars and podcasts for a while, which is how do we read situations and people? How do we read body language, positively and negatively? How do we read compliance and cooperation, positively and negatively? Can we look at the past as a, not a perfect predictor, but a, few, uh, a, a reasonable predictor of future cooperation? And, and, you know, I've said this before, every time I dealt with this person, he's been a jerk, what's the chance he's going to be an angel today? Probably not high. I'll be hopeful for Angel, but also be ready for jerk. Every time I dealt with this woman, she's been an angel. What's the chance she's going to be a jerk today? Probably not, not great. I'm not going to see jerk out of her, but I'll be ready for it if it appears. And I guess the issue I always think about, especially when it comes to human behavior, is it's unpredictable. It's erratic. It's driven by things that you don't always know what's happening, and it can be surprising. And so when I look at 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 people whose anger goes from reasonably cooperative and you know at zero to a hundred in a fraction of a second, it's always interesting to me uh, that we say certain trigger words to people. We say something which triggers a, an angry response in them. It can they can go from mostly cooperative, mostly reasonable to highly uncooperative in a fraction of a second. I always find that interesting. You can also think of the negotiated behavior agreement as a part of de-escalation skills. And we say things like, I can do this for you if you'll do this for me. I won't be able to do this for you if you if you don't stop doing this for me. You know, you come over to a patron and you say, I bet you know why I'm here, right? I bet you know why I came over. And they go, yeah, I'm being loud. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll, I'll tone it down. Okay, then we're good, right? That's a negotiated behavioral agreement. 
But oftentimes you think about de-escalation and you read the articles and you look at the stories and you see podcasts and webinars and stuff that comes from even people like me in my field, communication and security. And I've said this before is de-escalation doesn't work if you're the only one doing the de-escalating. De-escalation doesn't work if the other person does not cooperate. De-escalation does not work. Even your best efforts, your best attempts, your most reasonable, empathic, patient, listening skills attempts don't work if the other person doesn't want to comply. If they're like, I ain't doing it, then it's not going to happen no matter what you do. In those situations, them leaving or the police or security escorting them out of the library is the only solution because they're just not going to cooperate at all. And it's, it's interesting to me that because of pride and ego and, and the sense that sometimes somebody wants to be right, especially in a public forum like a library, that they will, they will sacrifice their ability to sit quietly in, the, in a peaceful room like a library uh, with having to put on a show of, of they're in charge or they're, they're dominant over you or they won't be told what to do by anybody, including a library person. It's interesting to me how, how ego sometimes gets involved in that where they would say, you know, even at the even at the solution is I have to get kicked out of this place or, or hauled out by security or the sheriff that I'm still going to do these things. And maybe some of that's driven by mental health issues. Some of it's driven by trauma and stress. Some of it's driven by just, just regular narcissistic ego. Some of it may be driven by drug and alcohol behavior. But it's interesting to me why you wouldn't just say, I don't always need to say face. I can agree and cooperate with this library person and stay here, or I can cause a big scene and then I have to leave. So the negotiated behavioral agreement is a part of de-escalation where you're simply testing this person and maybe how you say it and what you say as the response that you're looking for is have to be different in a couple ways. One, one is that they may not have heard you the first time. Two, they may be digesting what you're saying and don't understand it or don't, don't think that you're serious about it or don't understand that there are consequences perhaps coming. And, and maybe some of that is from the fact that they've not had consequences in the library before. Uh, people have let them get away with stuff. And I always talk in our discussions about the need for consistency. We're not running a prison camp, and it shouldn't be a horrible place to be in terms of rules and policies and guidelines and codes to follow all the time at the library. But there should be a sense that Monday through Saturday, Monday through Sunday, whenever you're open, that we treat everybody the same, firm, fair, consistent, reasonable, appropriate, that we treat people fairly, that we're legal in our codes and responses that we have created in our policies, but that we don't allow bad behavior on some days and good behavior on others, meaning that Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, we allow people to do whatever they want, and Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, we enforce our consequences, we enforce our code of conduct because we have a more assertive, sort of tougher uh, um, library uh, staff on, on shift those days. That's not what we want. We want people to be assertive, but also cooperative and polite with, with everybody that comes in. We can't always pick our customers. But the idea that, that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we need to be the same as Thursday, Friday, Saturday, so that there's not a mixed message to people that say, well, if I'm going to come in and screw around with the library, come in and cause problems at the library, this could be students or kids, teenagers, uh, people that are coming in. They know that these are the best days to do it because the staff doesn't care or the staff's fearful or the staff won't confront or address certain behavioral issues. So... This sense of de-escalation being a two-way street is really tough because you can do your best and the other person doesn't cooperate. And you can try everything that I've talked about in all my programs and things that you know from your experience that work and they just don't cooperate. So the sense of the negotiated behavior agreement is a collection of phrases and approaches and options that we can try to get this person to comply and to go along 
with behavioral components that we're asking him or her to do, which are not significant, right? We're not saying scratch the Lord's prayer on the head of a pin. We're just saying be quiet or don't cause problems or don't panhandle in here or don't you know, mess with other people's stuff or don't harass other people. I mean, these are, these are significant in some issues and, and kind of low-key and not that big of a deal in others, but they still impact the library business. So I want to talk about some kind of approaches and some samples. And think about what you may have used or seen that worked, that, that you heard a colleague say or a boss say, some, some kind of turn of a phrase, an artful way to get this negotiated behavioral agreement that worked. And, I, you know, when I, I think about my career, I, I steal from smart people all the time. And I call it research, of course. And I, I take things that I've seen work, and I, I, I try to discard things that don't. I try not to say the things that push people's buttons. I try not to say the things that come across as condescending or dismissive or impatient. But I also know that sometimes that, that my approach to certain things may not be the best, and somebody else may have a, a better way, in which I'll say, I'm going to try and see if it works. And so if you have colleagues or bosses or coworkers or people in your past other jobs you've had even outside the library that you've said, this seems to work because I've seen it work when other people do it, then try that. And conversely, stay away from those things that just push people's buttons. Stay away from those phrases which just seem to egg people on and seem, seem to seem push the buttons of that patron, especially who can be sensitive or, or anxious or narcissistically entitled or just super frustrated when you say certain things or do certain things. It just, it just makes the situation worse. I guess the... the earliest and best examples I ever seen was saying to somebody, I can do this for you positively if you'll do this for me positively. And the reverse of that, I won't be able to do something for you if you don't stop doing these negative things. There's lots of ways we can break that down, but it's really kind of that simple, which is I can help you if you stop shouting. I, I can't help you if you shout at me. Um, sir, if you curse me, I have to leave. I, I'm going to hang up the phone. Uh, I have to get off the phone or I have to leave the situation. And sometimes I, I tell people in training, try not to say the P word to people, which is policy. Sir, that's just our policy or ma'am, I don't write the policies. But sometimes I use that as my out pitch, my, my escape hatch by saying, uh, sir, it's against our policy. I can't, I can't talk to you if you curse me. If you curse me on the phone uh, by policy, I have to hang up. So I'm going to hang up, right? And I think supervisors need to back our employees when they get to that level where they have to make that decision. And that decision is based on frustration and intuition and saying, this person's not hearing me. And I've set boundaries. I've set a fence around this person's behavior, especially something like over the telephone in terms of cursing, and they still continue to do it. And we all know from life and kids and pets and everything else, there are no consequences for the behavior that's going to continue. If, if we look at certain situations, we say, well, just this once, I'm going to let this person get away with it, or... I'm not going to address this thing, then the message to that person is I can do whatever I want. So I can't help you if you do this negative thing. Or conversely, I can help you if you do this. And I will be able to do these things for you if you give me information or if you wait patiently over here, whatever it happens to be. And so the idea of, of the negotiated behavior agreement has so many variations and so many ways of thinking about it, but it's it, it kind of comes down to a conversation where you say, we're all trying to get through in life. We're all trying to get through our day. I'm trying to get through my work shift. You're trying to get through this experience in the library. And I want it to be positive for everybody, including you. And I don't care what you look like. I just care what you do. And I, I, don't, I don't care anything about you know, your appearance and how you, you present yourself to the world. But I just care that if it impacts the, the business, the library, in a negative way, we have to address it. 
And I sometimes think about a concept I use a lot called keep, stop, start. Keep, stop, start is kind of an organizational development long-time tool that's been around forever. I've used it in discussions and in, in group work and individually myself. What do I need to keep doing for my career or my personal life because it's working? What should I stop doing because it's a waste of time or money or it irritates people? What should I start doing because it's a good idea? So we can say this oftentimes a lot in, in situations where the person is, is kind of at that crossroads. And the crossroads itself is, is keep doing it because it's good for the library. It's good for, for this patron interaction. Stop doing it because it's not good for the library. It's not good for your continuing to stay here, patron. And start doing it because it's a good idea. And what I found, too, with human beings and human nature being what it is, is that sometimes if the person on the receiving end of the keep, stop, start or the receiving end of the negotiated behavioral agreement has the solution in mind that they came up with themselves, they created it, it's self-initiated, it's all much more easy. They say, well, I, I guess, you know, it, 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 can I go over here, sit over here? If I, if I, if I move over here, will that be better? And you go, yeah, that sounds great. You know, I, I, I'm trying to separate you from arguing with this other person. It seems like you have some history together. You know, I, I don't want you guys to fight. If you want to go sit over another part of the library, I appreciate it. That, that would help. Let's, let's try that. So, so you can think of this concept of, of, of cooperative buy-in. Buy-in tends to be easier and, and more successful when the person self-initiates the ideas. I, I've seen this a lot in my coaching career with employees, which is if they come up with the answer, rather than the boss, quote, telling them what to do, unquote, the, the buy-in tends to be higher and the success tends to be higher. And also the, the idea that the person feels sort of self-initiated and, and kind of the master of their own, their own success and things like that just tend to be a little bit stronger. If you follow my friend Ryan Dowd, uh, you've seen some of his video work. One of the things he talks about, and I was just looking at his video in a training program the other day, is, is this idea of blame the boss, blame the rules, blame the policies. You know, the, I, I'd like to let you be able to do that, but there are rules and I can't. Um, I, I, you know, I, I wish I could be the one that decides that you can do that, but, but my boss wants, wants us to do something different. And, you, you know, you, you don't want to get me in, in trouble with my boss. You don't want me to get in trouble, do you? And this oftentimes leads to something I find very useful in the negotiated behavioral agreement discussion, which is the forced yes answer. The forced yes answer says the person has to answer this question that you give them. It's a loaded question. It's a forced yes answer question. Um, with the word yes, because if they don't, they look ridiculous or it just doesn't make logical sense. I'm sure you don't want me to call the sheriff. I'm, I'm, I'm positive that you want to stay here and enjoy the library, right? I mean, they wouldn't say no, call the sheriff, unless they're being super obnoxious, right? And so when you look at the forced yes question, there's lots of people we can try it upon, kids, teenagers, uh, difficult, challenging situations with, with patrons, uh, where we just create a sense of... of Forced yes kind of means, you know, especially in the best word, cooperative agreement. Do we both agree this is, this is what we both want? I, I, you know, I, I know you don't want to leave for the day, right? And the person says, yeah, I don't want to leave for the day, right? Then we say, okay, let's just figure out, can you agree to do this for me or is it okay for you to do this, this, and this for me? And then you can stay. The negotiated behavior agreement and the forced yes question, pretty connected, right? If you think about this, this concept of blaming the boss or blaming the policy or blaming the rules or blaming the code, you can also, in a larger kind of a subset of that is, you know, the security officer here has told us or 
you know, in speaking with the police or the sheriff, they have said this, this, and this is what, what we can tell people that they can or can't do here. Sometimes you can, you can put the, the, you know, kind of divert the blame over to those people that the faceless, quote, security or faceless law enforcement. Um, I, I try not to bash people over the head with the, the, the legal manual, the policy manual, but sometimes I think it is useful to say it's out of my hands. It's a policy thing. It's out of my hands. It's a code of conduct thing. I wish I could, but I can't. Um, I, you know, I'd like to be able to help you in that situation if I had, I had the ability to do so, but I'm not allowed per our rules or policies to, to let you do that. I'm sorry. That's just, um, you know, unfortunately I have to, I have to help, uh, enforce what we have here. I, I know you don't want me to get in trouble. You, you wouldn't want me to lose my job, would you? I mean, that's kind of that forced yes thing that we're, that we're looking for. So there's lots of variations for that. Think of those forced yes questions where the person not only has to agree because it seems ridiculous if he or she does not, but it also makes your argument stronger by saying, you know, I, I know you want to comply, right? I know you want to do good things. And one of the ones I've seen, especially for people that are having mental health issues, uh, substance abuse issues, you know, kind of uh, uh, um, difficult challenges in being homeless, is is when we use the idea of, of not wanting to scare people. I've, I've, I've used this in healthcare, uh, especially healthcare security situations and ERs and things. I go, you know, you're, you're scaring the other people here. I, I know you don't want to do that, right? You, you don't want to scare people here. You don't want people afraid of you, do you? And I mean, that's one of those forced yes questions. And, and hopefully the answer is no, I don't want people uh, afraid of me. Yes, I will cooperate because I don't want people to be upset around me or scared of me, right? So, so look for those examples where you can say, I can ask a, and if you can call it a loaded question if you want, or a forced yes question, that, that helps sell what I'm trying to do in terms of the negotiated behavioral agreement. None of this is easy. None of this is snap your fingers and the person complies. We're talking about human beings, and they all have their foibles and their issues. Uh, it goes back to a sort of a larger picture, which we've talked about a lot, which is how we treat people in the library service environment. Uh, our previous interactions with them have been uh, cooperative and polite, and we've, we've been empathic and patient and good listeners, even when they are none of those things, that we have a history with this person of being assertive but fair and we have a history with this person for trying to help solve their issues and 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 give them the best opportunity to use the library in a successful way every single time um, it's tougher granted to do the negotiated behavioral agreement when you have an antagonistic relationship with a person which has existed based on having had to kick them out of the library before i'll give you an example of the nuclear option of the negotiated behavior agreement is a restraining order and I've had to get these based on somebody's behavior is so over the top, so threatening, so harassing, so uh, discourteous to the point of creating fear in other patrons and staff members because of this person's propensity for threats or violence, or that their behavior is so obnoxious in terms of trespass and disruption that they, they hurt the business of the library, we have to get a restraining order. And the restraining order is the final negotiated agreement, right? If you violate this order, we're going to call the sheriff or the PD on you. Now, I, I get it, and I've spent all of my career trying to enforce restraining orders, and they're not a bulletproof shield. It's not designed to, to be the be-all, end-all document that totally controls someone's behavior, because here's what I know from my experience. Restraining orders work really well for good rule followers. A lot of these people are not great rule followers, are they? That's why they're in the fix they're in. That's why they have multiple restraining orders against them from multiple parties, personally and professionally, businesses and relationships and even family members. And the restraining order does not guarantee compliance. 
Um, some people will say, I don't care. I'm going to get arrested anyway. I'm going to make my point by showing up and confronting or threatening or somehow interacting negatively with this person or this business or this library. I don't care what happens. The restraining order works best when the cops do their part, which is show up and then make an arrest and enforce the order, and the business or the person, and I've used these in domestic violence situations, calls the police and says, this person is here, we need to come enforce this order, instead of saying, well, you know, I'm only going to call the police if this person becomes obnoxious or threatening or violent. That's not the way the restraining order works. And the other issue is the person who makes the call about the restraining order is not the one that told the guy to stay away or the woman. It's the judge. The judge says, stay away from this business, stay away from this library, stay away from this person. And the judge is the one that, that wants the order enforced. So the negotiated behavior agreement is asking for compliance in different ways, asking for compliance in, in ways that seem like it's perhaps the person's choice and solution. Um, it gives them a face-saving way out sometimes. Um, you ask forced yes questions to kind of give them a face-saving way out as well. Uh, if you've listened to me talk in the, in the um, webinars and podcasts over the years for Library 2.0, one of my favorite phrases is you can't do that if you want to stay here. That's the ultimate negotiated behavioral agreement phrase, isn't it? You can't do that if you want to stay here. You can stay here if you stop doing these things. If you continue to do these things, behavioral issues, you know, interaction problems, threats, cursing, uh, hate speech, harassing behaviors of a sexual racial nature, you got to go. And so we know that looking at human beings starting at, at you know, early childhood, from terrible twos up through puberty and teenage years up into adulthood, that people hate being told what to do. They may hate being told what to do by people younger than them. They hate, maybe hate being told what to do by people that they don't share their same diversity. They may hate being told by people uh, to do things that they don't think are legal or reasonable or appropriate, even though they are legal, and even though they are vetted policies that we have used for years in the library. So you can't do that if you want to stay here. It says, I'm not telling you what to do. In actuality, we are. But we're saying make a choice about your behavior. And the other phrase I use a lot, which I like too, because it's kind of nefarious and hard to prove, is our insurance won't let you do that. It's a great behavioral sort of stopgap because it says, huh? What do you mean, our insurance? Who are you talking about, right? I can't do this thing which is sort of dangerous or threatening to other people or it could be destructive or, you know, hurts the library in terms of vandalism or something. I can't do that. Yeah, our insurance won't let you do that. It's a great, it's a great sort of interrupting phrase. I've talked before about a concept called thought stopping. And thought stopping is where you say something which is outside what the person expects to hear and it stops them in their tracks. Somebody's ranting about something and you go, is it still raining outside? And they go, huh? And they look outside and they go, yeah, it's still raining, and they go, eh, what was I saying again? And it interrupts that, that flow. Now, sometimes when we do that too early in the process where the person hasn't had a chance to vent or tell their story, they get super angry. It makes them even worse. And if anybody does this in your personal life while you're trying to talk to them about something serious or important and they change the subject and say, what's on TV? You get, you get super angry, right? But the function of thought stopping is to say, I have heard this person talk all the way through. It is now an attempt by me to interrupt this thought process, to thought stop them, so they're not stuck on broken record version number 16 of the same story, and I can try to make some headway. I can try to come up with some solutions once I get them back to the planet, once I get them back to reality. So thought stopping is where you simply ask after the person has vented, invented, 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 and you have tried to validate their concerns and provided some solutions, they don't hear any of it, 
if they start on the same same song, different verse, just ask them a question not related to the issue. Is that your motorcycle parked out there? I don't have a motorcycle. What were we talking about again? They bring them down to reality. It doesn't always work, but when it does, you can see that they physically reset. And you go, okay, now I can get through to this person. Now we can talk about the negotiated behavioral agreement because before all I heard was ranting and, and anger. When you look at compliance, it's also done in terms of how it appears to other people. And so I've always talked about separating people, especially kids, teenagers, talking to somebody off to the side rather than in front of their peers or their family or strangers. If we embarrass people in front of strangers or embarrass people in front of their crew, they never forget it. They never forget it. And, and of, that oftentimes, too, we do that maybe unintentionally because we're frustrated, but sometimes we do it when we give people ultimatums. And ultimatums almost never work, especially they won't work if you do not carry out what you have suggested or threatened that you're going to do. And when I mean threaten, I don't mean physical violence. I'm saying, you know, if you say to this person, if you do this again, I have no choice but to call the sheriff or the PD or security or to ask you to leave. And you, the person does it again, oftentimes to test you or to see whether you're serious or not or to see what your action is going to be. And you don't carry out the consequences that you just suggested were going to happen, then they know you're not serious. So I, I don't use the nuclear option of I'm going to call the cops on you unless I need to call the cops on this person. Not everything in the library needs the police. I've talked about this many times. But when you look at the nuclear option of, of you know, I'm going to have security you know, kick you out of here or drag you out of here, and that doesn't happen, what the person knows is you're not serious. So I'm careful in giving people ultimatums. You better do this or else. Oftentimes that just triggers people to be as recalcitrant and difficult and dig, dig their heels in as, as they've ever been because they, they hate being told what to do. But this idea of physical movement, let's, let's talk over here and dropping your tone, the assertive whisper. Let's talk over here. Let me get you away from this group, some of which you may know. It's peers. It's, it's kids you go to school with. It's, it's homeless people that you know from the shelter. It's your spouse, partner, or, or your own children. I don't want to embarrass you in front of them. I will have a quiet conversation away from other people to simply say, here's what I'm asking you to do. Can you do this for me? Will you be able to do this for me? Can I count on you to do this? I'm hoping you will. Right? I, I know you don't want to scare anybody. I know you don't want to have to leave the library. I know you want to get some, some help for your kids for something they're working on. And I can't do that unless you do this for me. Will you do that for me? The negotiated behavioral agreement has a lot of power. And we have a lot of choices in ways that we do it. Think of the most successful versions of this that you have heard of. That you are asking this person, why can't you be reasonable without saying, why can't you be reasonable? What we're trying to create in a semantically patient and, and meaningful, ethical, empathic way is be like me. Be reasonable. Be cooperative. Be an adult. Be a reasonable human being in this public space where I don't know you and you don't know me, but we both have the same goals, which is you use our facility safely and effectively and that you are invited back and that you create a relationship with this place where you're not a problem person, but you're just one of the patrons that we enjoy seeing on a regular basis. So that's the negotiated behavioral agreement. Um, I'm confident that especially if you talk in staff meetings and discussions with peers and colleagues, if you debrief what you have seen security do or even the cops or the sheriff have done, if you've seen what you debrief what your boss has done, positively or negatively. I liked when they said this. I didn't like when they said that. 
It seemed to work when he or she said this. It did not seem to work when he or she said that. Said that. How do we take real life, real stories, real examples of the negotiated behavioral agreement and turn them into tools for our toolkit? Learn from other people who do this well. Teach other people, especially if you're a, a longtime employee and you have good experience in this, teach other people to use the right kinds of phrases and tell them when they're using the wrong kinds of phrases. Stop saying calm down to people who are not calm should be written on the break room of every library on the planet. Learning from colleagues and peers with expertise and teaching younger colleagues or colleagues with less library experience about challenging patrons is super valuable. And sharing in the staff meeting conversation some of these negotiated behavioral agreements when you say to somebody, I hear you, thanks for telling me, Based on what you said, I can do this if you'll do this for me. That's a negotiated behavioral agreement. There's lots of options and, and kind of styles and communication styles and approaches we can use to get some version of that. Can you talk about it in a staff meeting and say, let's use these scenarios, kind of role play scenarios, are our most common frequent flyers, most challenging, irritating, eccentric, problematic patrons. What can we use as examples of the negotiated behavioral agreement that we can share with each other across all shifts, across all work platforms, so that when I'm here, my colleagues are kind of saying the same thing. And when I'm not here, my colleagues are kind of saying the same thing. So we have a continuity of message. And we do this on behalf of each other. And we do this on behalf of the Safe Library. And we do this on behalf of quality interactions with patrons, even though it may start off as a challenging discussion, a challenging behavioral issue. But we move to this negotiated behavioral agreement. We're looking for win-win on both sides. So I'm Steve Albrecht. Thanks to the producer of the Library Service Safety and Security Podcast, the other Steve, Steve Harganon. For more information, you can visit library20.com. And until next time, thanks for listening to the Library Service Safety and Security Podcast.